0: Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. Since 1999, the proportion of Germans who hold a favorable view of the United States has dropped by 39%. It dropped by 20% in Canada, our closest neighbor, and it dropped by 35% in Britain, our partner in the special relationship. Whatever else American foreign policy has achieved in recent years, it certainly doesn't seem to have won friends or influence around the world. A new report from the Rand Corporation argues that America's foreign policy has produced waning influence around the world, weakening our soft power and our capacity to shape outcomes and reach concrete achievements. When you combine this with some of the ongoing structural changes, or what the authors of the report describe as a cycle of hubris followed by nemesis, it's a development that doesn't bode well for us all. Joining me today to discuss the report are two of its authors, Ali Nguyen and Gabrielle Tarrini. Ali is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and Gabby is a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation. Guys, welcome to Power Problems.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks Emma. So I love this report, um, and it's titled The Lost Generation in American Foreign Policy. And so I wondered if we could start a little by asking you to talk about that. What does the title mean to you? Why did you choose such a
2: depressing and evocative title? So it definitely is not the most optimistic title. And I think put simply to me, I mean, it the fact that America's foreign policy setbacks have been more frequent than its achievements, uh, in the in the most recent century, um, is kind of what what that title means to us. Um, And, you know, thinking about, you know, my own experiences coming of age where there's this harsh juxtaposition between what I learned in history class about great U.S. foreign policy achievements and the amount of creation in institutions and norms that occurred because of U.S. leadership contrasted with the string of failures and backsliding that's marked most of my formative years. So, trying to reconcile these two very different pictures and understand how we got from point A to point B has been a conversation that's been constantly present uh, in the discourse uh, di- during my life. So that's kind of what what the title means to me. And the report, you know, attempts to characterize this and measure this in a more rigorous way.
1: Yeah, and just to, I'll just briefly, uh, you know, elaborate on the sort of the title in terms of its personal, you know, valence or its personal resonance. I. Yeah, I mean, I came of age in the to the golden '90s, and in the '90s, I, so Gabby and I were actually—I was—I was relating this anecdote to Gabby yesterday when we were preparing. Um, so up until 9/11, which happened my junior year of high school, um, I was actually quite disinterested in the world. Uh, I was quite parochial in my outlook, and in retrospect, um, I think that that parochialism I probably regarded as a luxury. So I think in the 1990s, I viewed American preeminence as something of a just a default condition in world affairs. It seemed uncontestable. Uh, the idea of a revanchist Russia, a resurgent, you know, China, even though for all the talk about great power competition now, and growing up in the '90s, they they seemed very like very remote possibilities. And then, nine eleven happened in my junior year of high school, and since then, so that was you know that occurred sort of roughly midway through my my life. And since then, my sort of formative impressions of U.S. foreign policy have been uh, not the most favorable. So there is there's morass in Afghanistan, then in Iraq, this war on terrorism, which begins in the Middle East, but then progressively expands in geographic scope. Um, But it's it's not just, and and it's a strategic drift that I think prevented us from focusing on developments in the Asia Pacific, which we now regard as this crucible of of world order. But in parallel to and reinforcing setbacks abroad, I I also felt, I've also felt more and more in the second half of my life that there's been uh, in erosion in the domestic foundations of a tenable foreign policy. So whether you look at the, the hollowing out of the middle class, growing income and wealth inequality, intensifying political polarization. So I think in the second half of my life, it's been strategic setbacks abroad uh, and I, I would say occurring in parallel with a disintegration of a domestic consensus.
0: That's really interesting. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think it's notable that you're both coming from that sort of generational mindset about this. And, you know, for myself, I fit into that age bracket, too. But I did want to flag up that the, the report actually does have a third author, right? James Dobbins, who, who does not fit that generational mold. Did you find that between the three of you, you sort of disagreed on some of these things or, or did he kind of uh, agree with you as well?
1: Gabby, you worked on. The, I was going to say, and and I should say, this this report is very much, you know, um, Jim and Gabby did very very heavy lifting on um, on this report. So I'm I'm curious, Gabby, what what do you think?
2: So I think that we in the report we looked at the um, kind of comparable situation after the Vietnam War in the United States, where we did see a very similar string of failures. And we tried to see, look at like, okay, the United States was able to rebound from that low point. What What is different today? And I think a lot of it does have to do with what Ali was just saying, which is that, you know, international factors kind of intersected with domestic factors and that Americans today haven't, they don't feel that whatever progress is being registered nationally and globally is not really being shared with them. So widening income Disparities and declining social mobilities, and so I think that was a, a really interesting piece of working on this with Ambassador Dobbins, trying to examine kind of what happened during his formative years, and you know during uh, after the Vietnam War, and what's, what's kind of different today.
0: That's really interesting. Um, So I I guess that's actually a good springboard to get a little more technical on this, um, because the report talks about declining influence. And I I wondered if we could sort of stop and define what you mean by that. What do you mean when you say that America no longer has the influence
2: around the world that it used to? So in the report, we define declining influence. And we mean that the United States has a significantly lessened capacity to affect the behavior of other states and societies as it pursues its own national objectives. And we try to get even more technical than that by using two metrics to gauge that influence. We use polling data um, from the Pew Research Center, which measures foreign public's opinions in the United States. Um, And then we also compile what we call a list of significant foreign policy achievements over time, starting uh, after World War II. and in, you know, both of these analyses, we find that, um, you know, there's a marked reduction in regard for incompetence in the United States, as well as a decline in the achievements that we've managed to uh, secure on the international stage. So by using those two metrics, opinion and achievements, we kind of hope to more granularly define influence.
1: Just to just to build on what Gabby was saying, I, I think that there are, you know, there are a number of ways that I'm, I'm sure that if, you know, any, um, any given individual who undertake this report might, might define influence in a, in a somewhat different way. But I think that there's uh, an important distinction. And I, at least for me, um, in the course of working on this report and in the course of just reflecting on the broader trajectory of U.S. foreign policy over the past two decades, I think that this uh, distinction between power and influence, on the other hand, has become more apparent. And I think that if you look at our, you know, our hard power, so if you look at, for example, our share of gross world product, if you look at our ability to uh, project military power into the, the furthest reaches across the world, I, I think that a number of individuals would say, well, those, you know, by that, by those metrics, our standing in the world or our, our power in the world hasn't diminished significantly, but I think that the ability to translate those hard power assets into the types of outcomes that Gab was describing, I do think that ability has uh, diminished. And I think, you know, just for sort of serving a number of uh, different outcomes. So if you look at uh, America's sort of the, I think the failure of uh, maximum pressure campaigns, for example, against Iran and North Korea, um, if you look at the the difficulty that the United States has had in mobilizing allies and partners to counterbalance some of China's uh, illiberal behavior. Um, just uh, interestingly, on 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 China, I think it's notable that uh, if you look at uh, if you look at the campaign uh, against Huawei, if you look at the imposition of tariffs on on China, um, it's notable that those uh, those efforts imposing tariffs on China, trying to uh, thwart Huawei's growth, they didn't actually achieve many results until China began engaging in this wolf warrior diplomacy of this year. And so I think it's interesting that to the extent that there is now a certain measure of counterbalancing or pushback against China, it's been occasioned more by I think, China's own behavior than by by U.S. foreign policy. You see similarly that there are now growing efforts to circumvent the reach of the U.S. dollar. And I think that for me, what's most striking is just the America's ability to just mobilize coalitions, to mobilize collective action. And And what it suggests to me is that um, and And I think that we try to bring this out in the report is that there's an important temporal dimension at work, um, and that is to say that uh, hard power when you deploy hard I mean so the United States on its own unilaterally, it does have uh, residually an enormous capacity to affect change, uh, to compel uh, other countries to take certain actions to or to compel other countries not to take certain actions. But I think that that short term ability to translate hard power into Begrudging uh, behavior by other countries, it doesn't necessarily translate into a longer term ability to mobilize coalitions. And so what I, what I fear is that in focusing, uh, you know, if, if we focus too much on the capacity of unilateral hard power to affect the behavior of other countries in the short term, then we perhaps neglect that over the medium to long run, the actions that other countries can take to circumvent the reach of U.S. power to mobilize or to form coalitions of their own uh, to sort of engage in blunting behavior. And so I do think that there's an important temporal dimension. So as we look at power versus influence, hard power versus soft power, I think that temporal dimension is important.
0: Yeah, so that, that's something I actually really quite liked about this report is I, I think it fits well into kind of a, a growing um, litany of work on sort of US foreign policy and the fact that hard power isn't always achieving everything we want it to achieve. You know, it's, it's nice to be powerful, but we're not actually seeing that translated into outcomes. And I think the maximum pressure campaign on Iran is, is a really good example of that. Um I'm curious as to whether you think this decline is something that's structural or something that's self-inflicted. I mean, it seems to me that that if this is about influence, it is far less about just structural shifts in the balance of power. America is still very much a hard power superpower. Um,
2: we're talking about influence. So why is this happening? So in the report, we look at kind of three buckets of arguments as to why this decline might be occurring. Um, You know, the the first is that there's something different about American society now. So our domestic divisions have increased, which has led to waning public support for active international engagement and therefore a less effective foreign policy abroad. We also look at, you know, our policies, the fact that foreign policy in the 21st century has relied on force at the expense of diplomacy and has at times thought, unrealistic objectives, such as the wholesale changing of entire societies and political systems. Um, and then we also look at the, the structural reasons for it. So discussions about the rise of the rest and the diffusion of power and the rise of China creating alternate poles of attraction that makes it more difficult for the United States to accomplish its objectives. And we we find that all of these explanations have merit to them. Um, but we, we found that the, the least kind of persuasive one is that last one, that the rise of China has created, you know, a way for, has somehow prevented the United States from accomplishing its foreign policy objectives. And if we're looking back to 2001, that's just simply not true. The it China did prevent, you know, cause the United States to invade Iraq and it didn't, you know, cause us to adopt a, you know, policy of military preemption against, uh, nuclear proliferators. So, um, we kind of in the paper explore all of these um, explanations of decline and and kind of posit our own.
0: Yeah, so I, I like the way that this paper kind of fits into some of the literature on American decline, but it's very much not about irreversible structural hard power decline. It's mostly about ways in which we've seen our influence globally go down because of things we've actually done um so i do want to come to, to sort of the ways that you quantify decline though because i think definitely we can we can all just look at the world and see that there has been this decline and in influence um but you try to actually quantify it you know so you take um popularity um and then a measure that you call achievements um so let's let's start with the first of those um tell me a little about why you think popular opinion around the world matters
1: here i think what's notable is that while it is true that there are oscillations from, you know, one president, you know, one administration to the next administration, and we see some, you know, we see seesaws. Uh, I think what's notable is if you sort of take and you were actually I mean, you were getting to some of this data in your in your introductory comments that if you look at the sort of the broader trajectory of uh, sentiment towards the United States and a number of allied and partner countries, um, the the net declines that we see over a sustained period of time, they actually They obtain uh, despite those oscillations. And I think that's a very concerning trajectory. So it's, it's a, it's a proxy of sorts. It's, it's a, it's a proxy for influence. But I think that if you look at, if you look at the uh, extent of the net declines in a number of, in popularity in a number of of allied and partner countries, number one, number two, uh, realizing that such a central part of America's ability historically uh, to wield influence its contingent upon its ability to mobilize Allied and partner support. I think then those declines in popularity, they they sort of they loom larger because the United States shorn of its diplomatic network, it's not going to be reduced to a second rate power right? for it for because of its hard power, uh, because of its extant hard power. But I do think that the United States in which those types of declines have uh, become entrenched um it it's it's a it's a superpower that would be significantly reduced in its ability to mobilize collective action and form coalitions
0: you know it strikes me that this is uh, almost a very interesting reflection on the term isolationism right which is thrown around so often to mean all sorts of things but in this case we are actually talking about an america That shuts itself off from the world and doesn't want to work with others. And these declines in popularity—it seems to me—are a reflection of that. It's not of whether we're using the military or not; it's of whether we want friends.
1: I I just wanted to add, maybe just one um, quick—you know—one quick point. um, And I imagine that we'll get—you know—get to this later as well. But I do think that something that I found—you know—quite concerning about the present moment, and I think that this has implications for American influence going forward. Is and and I'm I'm looking at this just in a uh, sort of a bipolar U.S.-China context. But, and again, Gabby and I were, were talking about this issue yesterday. Something that I found very striking is I think that there has been a presumption or maybe a hope on the part of many American observers that um, as, um, as the sort of the one plausible uh, near-peer competitor grows in its hard power, grows in its economic influence, and that as uh, that, and as other countries began to recoil, Uh, that they would sort of automatically make common cause with the United States. And I think that what we're seeing particularly in response to the pandemic is that the United States and China in different ways are engaging in strategic self-sabotage. And there was an article that the New York Times published, I think it was in May, and it talked about how a number of middle powers, and I know that term middle powers, is very capacious, and I'm I'm basically meaning powers except for the United States or uh, uh, outside of the United States and China. But, this article said that on a growing range of issues, whether it's uh, enhancing uh, pandemic disease preparedness, whether it's mitigating climate change, uh, salvaging some semblance of an open uh, trading order on and on and on, that a growing number of middle powers are increasingly saying, expressing con- anxiety about the direction that Beijing is taking, but simultaneously expressing anxiety about the direction that Washington is taking. And so again, it's, it's an indication. Uh, I mean, I remember. five years ago, 10 years ago, there was this this, uh, reflex that often obtained, which is that uh, as China grows more prosperous, uh, as it grows stronger militarily, that other countries will counterbalance it. They will sort of just naturally sort of fall into Washington's uh, orbit. I think what we're seeing now is that a growing number of countries believe that this alleged choice between Washington and Beijing is, is perhaps a false one and maybe an unproductive one for their own national interests.
0: Yeah, so uh, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, and so I, I guess I wanted to talk a little more about the practical side of this. Um, because the, so the other thing you look at, so you look at popularity, right? So that's just, you know, how do people feel about us? But then you also look at um, sort of what America has been able to achieve over the last 30 years. And actually, I think that was one of the first things that we said when we started talking today was, you know, you said this lost generation of American foreign policy was just that we have achieved far less. You know, in the last twenty or thirty years than we did in the period before that um so this strikes me as a really difficult thing to actually quantify. Can you talk about it a little
2: sure so we we compile a list of what we call significant foreign policy achievements starting um you know after World War two and you know it, it was difficult to kind of figure out what our criteria would be um but also ultimately, we ended up on um you know achievements. Our American actions that have been assessed to have made enduring contributions to um, a more peaceful and prosperous world by doing a couple of things: so shaping global norms, building and creating institutions, uh, stemming aggression, uh, and promoting widespread economic growth. And there's a couple of other factors. But I just, you know, when we were going through and making this list and iterating on it with people, like after we after we finished and just kind of took a step back, I was really just shocked at how the rate of achievement has fallen. And so we find that from 1945 to 2000, the average rate of significant achievements on an annual basis was about one per year. And since 2001, that rate has fallen to one every four years. So it really is, I mean, you can quibble with the methodology, you can add more, you can subtract more, but we think that ultimately the pattern will follow kind of the same, um, the same way. Yeah,
0: I mean, I certainly, you know, I, I would quibble personally with the idea that sort of, you know, institution building is necessarily, um, you know, a proxy for U.S. national security. Um, but I think within the confines that you've set yourself in the report, you're you're pretty consistent across presidents. And that's what really matters here. Um, how did you assess, so more more recent presidents, because obviously you're talking about long lasting institutions, and I saw that a lot of Trump's policies were basically assessed as question mark.
2: Right. Um. So we didn't, you know, a lot of President Trump's, we assess failures and achievements, right? So, and we're focusing on enduring achievements and failures. So for President Trump, I mean, his term is not even over. So we feel that not enough time has passed for history to be able to judge these decisions, which is why we had a couple of, you know, question marks uh, on his term. OK, so let's wrap
0: up, I guess, by by talking more broadly here. Um, so the report basically implies, I think, that American ability to sort of use institutions, work with other countries, influence people countries more generally, that that has declined. Um and so my big question really is, how much of this is that the the institutions and partnerships that we have are just less well suited to the current moment than they used to be? Um because I was a little frustrated, I guess, that the report didn't have many suggestions for actual solutions uh to, to some of these problems.
1: I'll just take maybe a, a quick stab and I I was thinking about I, I've been thinking about this question a lot. Um, I think it's I do think that there are some ways, perhaps, in which alliances and partnerships need to be uh, reimagined. Um, I, I think that, and, and you know, I mentioned earlier that you know a number. I, I think the number of allies and partners are increasingly hedging their bets. Are increasingly concerned not just about what they feel are certain uh, you know, frailties in the in the postwar order, but perhaps concerned about just sort of a baseline level of continuity in American foreign policy. Um, I also do think and you know we are recording this you know this podcast in the time of you know covid-19 and i, I, I think it's difficult to over sort of to overstate the the impact that covid-19 is having on conceptions of uh, what sort of international order should do what american alliances and partnerships should do uh, i think that there is a uh, what covid-19 one of the one of i think its principal effects has been to, it's placed into very very sharp relief just how inadequate uh, the current post-war order is to Mobilizing collective action um, to uh, on on you know big transnational challenges. And for me, what I find especially ominous is that I had hoped, I guess perhaps naively in retrospect, I had hoped that when it became apparent that what began as a health emergency you know very quickly morphed into a pandemic, then into an economic emergency, I had hoped that when its gravity became clear, that it would occasion the kind of emergency great power cooperation that we saw, for example, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So it's not that the United States and China circa 2008-2009 had some great strategic affinity for one another, but they both, for the purposes of uh, containing this economic crisis, they acted in ways bilaterally and via the G20 to prevent what was then a fast-moving recession from morphing into another 1930s-style Great Depression. Not only did we not see that type of emergency coordination, what we've actually seen is that COVID nineteen has actually set in motion a chain of events that have brought the U.S. that have brought the U.S.-China relationship, or that has brought the U.S.-China relationship rather, uh, to its lowest level since the normalization of relations. So I think what we're seeing is, um, and I think again, COVID nineteen is kind of this superstructure for for analyzing some of these changes. We're seeing that. Um, that transnational challenges increasingly are not serving as occasions for cooperation, they're serving as uh, occasions for great power divergence, they are amplifying nationalistic impulses that are actually going to make it that much harder to address future transnational crises. They are highlighting inadequacies of the institutions that com- that comprise the, uh, the post-war order. And I think that they also are, uh, I-, I think, casting, or I should say they are placing in a sharp relief, uh, the need to pursue foreign policy and domestic policy, and sort of a, a sustainable foreign policy and a sustainable domestic uh, foreign policy in parallel. Um, I know that, you know, we came on to discuss uh, this Rand Corporation report, but just today, just actually today, uh, I think it was this morning, uh, the Carnegie Endowment published a report uh, published by a very esteemed group of distinguished bipartisan practitioners and talking about the need for a foreign policy that serves the middle class. And they say that, look, there's a lot of discussion in Washington about uh, cosmic struggles between authoritarian powers and democratic powers, a new Cold War. And they did, conducted, I think, hundreds of interviews in a number, I think it was three states uh, in in the proverbial American heartland. And what they found consistently is that um, Americans are, are not, they're not running away from the world. Um, they are actually, and what we, and I think that we discussed this in the report as well, that Americans are, you know, they are supportive of um, integration into the global economy. They're supportive of alliances, but, and so they are not running away from the world, but they want America's role in the world to be uh, measured, judicious and predicated upon a resuscitation of the middle class, a resuscitation of uh, just a a greater sense of domestic cohesion. And so I know that's sort of a a smorgasbord of thoughts. But I I guess what I would stop with is by saying that I think going forward, um, any American foreign policy to be sustainable, it has to be focused on Domestic renewal, domestic investments, you can't have a sustainable foreign policy without a broad buying from the public, without a broad economic uh, uh, foundation. And I I think that those uh, domestic foundations are increasingly being hollowed out.
0: Yeah, so perhaps suggests that we need to think about domestic popularity as well as international. Um, and I, I would give a second shout out to that Carnegie report called "Making U.S. Foreign Policy Work Better for the Middle Class." It's it's a really excellent read on what you might be able to do about U.S. foreign policy. Gabby,
2: I want to give you the last word. What do you think we can do to improve things? Yeah, so I would I would echo a lot of what Ali says. I mean. Certainly more needs to be done at home to persuade skeptics that it is in their interest to have America, you know, being engaged um, to work for a more peaceful and prosperous world. And I I would, I mean, the polls that Ali was talking about that kind of um, attempt to measure America's uh, appetite for engagement in the world, one of the things that worries me about those is that they measure kind of the extent rather than the intensity of opinions And they then, you know, they they tend to underestimate, you know, the power of a really motivated um, and organized minority um, to to shape political opposition to what Ali is talking about. So I really think, I completely agree with him that we need to, um, you know, focus on our domestic institutions and realize that they, you know, in addition to the post-war order, might be increasingly obsolete and not well suited to American engagement.
0: Well, foreign policy begins at home. So that's all we have time for, I'm afraid, um, but thanks to you both for, for joining us today. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Emma. And thanks to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. And as always, if you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power And if you like the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.